0: If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9. If uh, you'll join me there, Matthew chapter 9. I uh, shared just a few moments ago, we are continuing in this kind of special three-week series. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Acts since the start of the year, and we'll pick back up in a couple weeks in Acts. But uh, walking through this series that we're calling Becoming, and the hope is is that we want to become... Um, Everything God made us to be and we want everyone to become everything God made them to be that God has created you with a purpose. He's created you with a design that, uh, throughout scripture, you can, you can go to specific texts and you can unpack those scriptures that remind us that God has a purpose and a plan for our life. Paul wrote to the Ephesians over in Ephesians two. He said, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we would walk in them. That word workmanship, the, the, the word there is poem. And so like we're basically, Paul is saying, this is the Holy Spirit anointing Paul to write this passage, is that you are a one of a kind and that God has a design and a desire for your life to make an impact for his glory, for his mission. Paul told the Philippians over in Philippians 1, 6, his letter to that local church. He said, I am sure of this, but he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so we're, we're all, we're all, as we seek the Lord, becoming who he's designed us to be. He desires to stretch us, mold us, shape us more and more into the image of his son, and so how, does, how, do we, how do we do that? What does that look like? Practically, how does that play out in our lives? And, and that's really what this series is all about. Loving God, loving people, living sin. That those are basically summary words that you can trace back to what we call in Scripture the great commandment and the great commission. Jesus said the Pharisees were, were trying to pin him down on what's the most important commandment? He said that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything rests on those two commands. Love God and love people. Live sent. We'll talk about that next week. But it's this idea that as Jesus called his disciples there on the Galilean mountainside to be with him. he he invested in them and then says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so, so we're talking about what does it look like to follow the Lord and become everything that he has made us to be. So last week was all about loving God. And this week is all about loving people. So in Matthew chapter nine, here's one of the reasons I love this text so much is because Matthew is going to share his personal testimony with us. If you're a believer in the room or listening in online, and you've come to that time and place where you have surrendered to your life, surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, you have a testimony. And that is one of the most powerful ways the Lord would want to use you to share his love with others is to share your testimony. And so Matthew is going to share his testimony with us. This is the day that we're going to read about where everything about the rest of his life changed forever. And and, and in it, he is very intentional to, 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 to kind of lay out a theme, which is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the ultimate and true everlasting King. He's the only one. So everything in his gospel that he wrote is all supporting that theme in that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only one. And so maybe you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 has the longest recorded sermon of our Lord. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know this for sure, but my hunch is this sermon took place very close to Capernaum, which is where we're reading about today, where Matthew was. And my hunch is Matthew might have been in the crowd that day, and that, and that no doubt Capernaum, there Christ. This was his home base for his earthly ministry as he was in Galilee, and so no doubt he would hear the stories or perhaps see Christ and Christ see him, um, just kind of on a week to week. We don't, we don't know. We don't know, but. But what we do know is that as we are leading up to Matthew's testimony, he's very intentional to share some very specific miracles about the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 8, he begins and he talks about how Christ cleansed a leper. He cleansed a leprous person. Person had leprosy, they meet Jesus, they no longer have leprosy. He shares a story about how a Roman centurion comes to him and, and shares how his servant is, is sick and not well. And, and, and he's like, Jesus, you're not even, I'm not even worthy for you to be in my house. And, and Jesus is amazed by his faith and at his faith with the word, he is healed. Your servant's healed. In Capernaum, the synagogue is there. You can go there today. You can stand in that same synagogue, at least the foundation and some of the ruins there that Christ would have preached at. And you can walk down this little road, and you can go to where Peter's home was. And it was at that home that Jesus went to and healed Peter's mother-in-law, who was very sick and almost, almost gone. They had almost slaughtered. But lost her but Christ brings healing to her and Mark's gospel tells us that by sundown no doubt word has traveled quickly among the city and the bible says the whole city showed up outside the house and these are people who were sick they were demon possessed they all had lots of complicated issues and yet all through the night Christ is investing bringing healing to that place what Matthew's teaching us and showing us is that Jesus Christ has authority and power over all things physical. And then he moves on and he talks over Matthew eight about how Jesus calmed the storm, how the wind and the waves obey his word. They obey his command. And so not only is Jesus have authority and power over the physical, but Jesus has authority and power over nature. Nature listens and obeys his word. From there in Matthew 8, it kind of wraps up with another story of how there were these two men who were demon possessed and Christ cast the demon out of those men into swine that then ran into the water. And now we see Jesus not only has authority and power over physical, he has authority and power over nature. He also has authority and power over all things spiritual. And then he comes into the story in Matthew chapter nine, right before we're fixing to start and they're in Capernaum. And if you remember that story of those desperate folks who had to get their friend to Jesus, they cut a hole in the roof and dropped him down. And Jesus brings healing to his body and forgiveness of his sin because of his faith. And the religious self-righteous Pharisees are right there and they don't like what they're seeing. And they don't like what's going on. And it's, that's the setup to where Matthew is going to share with us his testimony of how Jesus changed his life. And so we're going to start with just the fact that we're going to talk about love and, and loving people in, in, in very specific ways. That love sees and love invests and love challenges. Love Sees, Love invests, and Love Challenges. I want to show a quick picture. You're going to see this. Some of you are going to know exactly what it is, all right? So who knows what this is? Just shout it out. Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? So thankful that our next generation knows Waldo. I love these. I love these, these books. And just so you know, this is for real. I, I looked and it took me about five minutes but I finally found Waldo. He's in there. And so what it is, is you open the book and you have these pictures and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And typically there's lots of people in the picture, but you are looking for somebody with a red and white striped sweater, a toboggan and a cane and some glasses. And he's somewhere in there. And so, and so you get that and you just kind of look and you just kind of look and he is in there. He's kind of in the middle. It looks kind of like a glob of people there. But, but here's, here's why I say this it's because we all know the difference between seeing people And seeing people. We know the difference between gathering in this room this morning. And just kind of doing a kind of a panoramic view with our eye. And we see people. But it's a whole different thing to see individuals. And that's what Jesus does. I'm amazed at Jesus. I mean everything amazes me about Jesus. But one of the things is how he can minister to the multitudes. But how he can also minister to the one. And this is what happens in this story. Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. The Bible says this, that Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Now that, that is, there's a lot there. There's a whole lot in that little statement because just the fact that Matthew was in this booth, whatever that looked like, it meant that he was a twisted, corrupt man despised person. It it doesn't even matter who it is, but just the fact that you're in it and you're in that booth, that's who, that's who you are. The way that worked was under like provinces or or land under Roman rule, Uh, nationals in that area could purchase a franchise. And so you purchase a franchise, I guess, for the right price. And then you can have you, you can be the tax collector for that spot and Rome would require a certain percentage of tax on, on goods and, and services, whatever that looked like. And so uh, the tax collector literally didn't, really had a lot of freedom saying, well, well, if Rome is gonna get 5%, then I'm gonna charge 10%. I mean, I don't even know what it was, but basically as long as Rome got what Rome wanted, you can have the rest. And so, so with that kind of um, freedom... Can you imagine the elements that are there for, for corrupt, for corruption, that the rich get richer, the poor get poor, no doubt abuse of power that's happening there. And here's the thing they can do whatever they want to do because they are, they are enforced by Roman military. And so this is the role of Matthew. This is what he does. He's a tax collector. Your, your version might say a a publican. And so there's all the opportunity there for corruption. And and people would view whoever is in that booth as as a traitor, as a traitor, a servant of Rome who's seeking to take advantage of people. Now, here's what makes this even more interesting or more challenging. And that is this, is that Matthew isn't a Roman. He is a Jew. He's a Jewish man grew up in a Jewish home, a Jewish heritage. And now you have a, a Jew who is serving the Roman government as a tax collector that is taking advantage of his own people. And so uh, a Jewish scholar named Alfred Erdersheim said this about a Jewish tax collector. He said, number one, they will be barred from the synagogue. You can't worship with God's people. In other words, if this is you, you. You can't worship. You can't come to church. And so you are, you are not allowed. You are barred. You are forbidden to have any religious or social contact with fellow Jews. Matthew lived a life of isolation from his people, from his community. He ranked as an unclean animal. And so Jews would have nothing to do with unclean animals. So to be a Jewish tax collector would be the equivalent of being a a swine. And because he was viewed as a traitor and a liar, he was ranked with robbers and murderers. There was no difference between a tax collector, a robber and a murderer. And not only all of that, but he was forbidden to give testimony in any Jewish court because he's a traitor and he can't be trusted. So he'll never be put on the stand because you can't trust what they say. And so in in his world, I I think it's important for us as much as we can to know that Matthew was despised and rejected. And he was despised and rejected by his own people. And it sounds very familiar in Isaiah 53, as the prophet speaks of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Matthew 53:3, that he, Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And yet it was to the outcast, and it was to the outsider, that Christ extends his grace and his forgiveness and his love. It's amazing. It's so counter culture. <laughs> it's so counter to our hearts. Jesus extends grace to public enemy number one. And when Christ sees people, he doesn't just see who they are. He sees who they will become. That he sees, he knows Matthew. He sees Matthew. He understands what Matthew's life will become as he follows and becomes who God made him to be. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit does inside the life of a believer. He changes us. He grows us. He convicts us. Shapes us. Over in Matthew 4, just a couple verses or chapters earlier, Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew, the fisherman brothers. And he says, follow me and I will make you. I will make you. So in other words, Peter and Andrew, you're not gonna make yourself a fisher of men. You can't self-help yourself enough and, 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 and on your own strength and under the, the strength of your bootstraps that you can, you can live this life of following me. No, you follow me, surrender your heart to me and I will make you, I will make you fishers of men. And Jesus sees beyond the outward appearance and he sees the heart. And can't that be so hard sometimes? Can't it be so hard to look beyond the rough facade or the, 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 the beliefs, the convictions, the lifestyle that, that we do not agree, we do not affirm and see beyond all that to a heart and to a soul that our Lord loves? John 3, 16, we could maybe all quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The world, that's everybody. The world is everybody. For God so loved the world. It is the great commandment lived out for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor, which is everybody, by the way. Buy, or love your neighbor as yourself. But it can be hard to see people that you despise. And it can be hard to see people who have different convictions. It can be hard to see sinful people. But may we be reminded that we are sinful people. We are those sinful people. It may look different. And I apologize if you're looking for that encouragement right there. I mean, we are. What does the Bible say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10, for there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for of while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so by God's grace, what does it look like to love people? It begins with seeing people. And not just seeing people, but seeing people, (laughs) seeing people, but not just seeing, but investing love, invest in verse nine. Again, the Bible says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed them. I can't, I I can't imagine, but I'm thinking that people are observing. They're probably picking their jaws up off the ground as to what is happening before their eyes. And though they may not 100% realize, we can look at it and see the gospel of Jesus is for all people. It's for everybody. And I don't know what that conversation might have looked like, but but I can't help but, but know that God was doing a work in Matthew's life leading up to that moment. Whether or not he was at the Sermon on the Mount, whether or not he is in full aware of all the details of what was happening in Capernaum and, and all the, the, the kind of uh, the, the big news that's breaking and, and all of that. But, but what I do know is that God had been working on Matthew's heart and he had been revealing that need to be rescued. The need for forgiveness, the need that his own people said you can't have. You can't have because of who you are and you can't have because of what your job is and you can't have for what your hobby is. And so Matthew is wrestling with that conviction. And I'm reminded that God is always at work. On Wednesday nights, one of the studies we're doing is experiencing God. And, and if you've ever gone through that study, it's a great study, but one of the truths, and, and, and it's, a, it's a powerful truth, is this, it's encouraging. And that is that God is always at work. He's always at work. And so God is at work in the life of Matthew. And he's longing for that grace, longing for that forgiveness. But love didn't just see love invest. Jesus says, follow me. And the invitation for a relationship with Jesus, that was all he needed. And he left everything. There's parallel accounts in different gospels over in Luke chapter five twenty-eight. They give us a few more words, but says this that he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. That in that moment, Matthew dropped the franchise, left the keys. I don't know, maybe he gave them to somebody, but he literally left everything. He left his livelihood, he left his security, he left his comfort. He left everything to follow Jesus. And, and I, I think of that verse how, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but forfeits his soul? And I think that was a line in the sand moment for Matthew where he understood that life and life to the full is only through the Messiah and he is worth everything. And so he literally left everything and went. If you were to line the disciples up and you were to kind of say, well, who gave up the most? materialistic wise. My hunch is it's probably Matthew. And he left it all to follow the Lord. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He calls his disciples and he invests in his disciples and he trains his disciples and he sends his disciples out. And Matthew understood something that is crucial to the gospel. And that is this is I can't imagine what the spiritual warfare must have looked like in that tax collector's booth. The invisible war. Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. Don't know, maybe he said other things, I don't know, but that's what what we have. He said, follow me. And I can only imagine the enemy's attempt to whisper, you, you can't follow him. Do you see where you're sitting right now? Do you know how much money you just took from that person that doesn't have that money? Do you know that that, that you gotta get some stuff together in your life, man? Like you can't follow Jesus and and, and be living the life that you live right now. But Matthew, praise the Lord, he, he knew that that was a lie from the enemy because the lie says, clean yourself up first, and then follow Jesus, then accept Jesus. I've had conversation after conversation with people who understand the gospel, know that Jesus is the only way, and they get to the point to say, I just need to get some stuff right in my life right now, to which in love and grace and truth, all that I can muster up, I say, you will be waiting forever. Because we can't change ourselves. And Matthew knew it. And so in his mess and in his corruption and in his bad habits, he just left and he followed Jesus. And Jesus began to work in Matthew's heart on that day that only God can do and began to transform him. And because the love of Jesus saw him and the love of Jesus invested in him, what does Matthew do? He turns around. As a fresh new believer and follower in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is willing to give everything for the Lord. And he sees the people that need the gospel. And it's people who are just like him. And not only does he see them, but he invests in them. He throws a party. He throws a party. His almost instant response to the grace of God. Is to share that same grace with other people who desperately need it. In verse 9, Jesus said, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners come and were came and rec, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I love to see somebody with a, a who begins a fresh commitment with the Lord. It's refreshing. Um Many times folks come to Christ and they're so excited, they just have to go tell somebody else. And what can happen if we're not careful, if we don't keep the fire heart hot on loving God and devoting ourselves to the Lord is that that fire can can kind of turn to just more of an ember. But yet for Matthew, the very first thing he says, I must share this grace. I must share this news with others. And he goes and he throws a party. And I can only imagine he was fired up. (laughs) He was ready to roll. And this gathering was a gathering of outcasts. I mentioned parallel accounts over in Mark 2, verse 15, Luke 5, 29, kind of gives the the other perspectives to this story. But they let us know this is Matthew's house. And so this is his house. Matthew doesn't say it which by the way, could be a mark of just even Mark's uh, or Matthew's humility. Like he's not trying to be the main player in the story. He's not saying, hey, look at what awesome thing I'm doing in my house. Like almost in his testimony, you read, he's just humbly sharing at the house. We invited and there's the app We don't know who was there, but it could have been more tax collectors. It could have been murderers. It could have been drunkards. It could have been prostitutes. It could have been what culture might refer to as riffraff, but to sum it all up, ungodly people, ungodly people. And I love this is that Jesus was willing to invest in them. Jesus could have spent his time all kinds of different ways on that particular day. But at that day, at that hour, the most important thing For him to be was in that house full of sick, spiritually sick people who needed a doctor. And that doctor was Jesus. And so love sees and love invests. But love also challenges. Love challenges. Love challenges our comfort zones. (laughs) It challenges what we're, you know... Comfortable doing it—it—it stretches us. This is why the love of Jesus is so radical; it's so counterculture because this is what the love of Jesus looks like. In verse eleven, the Bible says, "And when the Pharisees saw this, so the Pharisee knows we got people seeing different things in this same story. Jesus sees." the sinner in need of his grace and forgiveness and the Pharisees see a wicked people who don't deserve his grace and his mercy. They see different things. And when the Pharisees saw this in verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And and, and their minds are made up. I, I don't think they have good intentions asking this question. Um, I think they know, I, I don't think there's an answer that anybody could say that would satisfy them in that moment. I think they've already made their mind up that what is happening in this room is not of God and that they would have nothing to do with it. My hunch too is that they were a little nervous to go and talk to Jesus. So they talked to the disciples, but he's talking to them and they were uncomfortable with Jesus They had their minds made up about him and who he was and they were absolutely blinded by their self-righteousness. They were blinded to their own sin. They didn't need the forgiveness of Jesus and those other people don't deserve the forgiveness of Jesus. And this is the dynamic that is at play as the Pharisees are watching in. But Jesus enters into the conversation in verse 12. But when he heard it, Jesus is going to teach him a lesson about love. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus confronts them. And what he says he talks about how the, uh, that when they heard it, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I mean, who in here likes going to the doctor? Nobody. First service, nobody. (laughs) Nobody likes going to the doctor. Why? Because you're healthy. Or you don't want to know the truth. Or you don't want to know what's going on. Like you're healthy, so you're not going to go to a doctor. Unless there is an illness that you have that has ratcheted up enough to say, Okay, I need help. And I need somebody to help make me feel better. And so I call and I make the appointment. The Pharisees didn't need a doctor. Because they had it all together. Because in their self-righteousness, they're completely healthy. But the sick, the sick need a doctor. And this doctor, Jesus Christ makes house calls. I love that. Jesus goes to the sick and he invests time in them. And here they are, these tax collectors and sinners confessing that they are spiritually sick. And when Jesus communicates to these Pharisees, he is saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. You see these sick people here? This is, this is why I'm here. In verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is powerful. This is so, so powerful. He says, go and learn what this means. What he's saying is in our vernacular, I would say, um, you, you know, better than this, or you should know what to do. How many times we've thrown that? You should know this. You should know this. Why? Because you probably know this. You just chose to ignore it. And this is what he's saying. What he's saying is he's rebuking them because what's going on in here and why I'm here. Like you should know. And then he quotes, he quotes Hosea chapter six, verse six. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea chapter six, verse six. The Bible says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is God's word calls you to be merciful and forgiving and not judgmental and condemning. And that story of Hosea, if you haven't read it lately, it's, 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 it's amazing. Let me read just part of the first and second verse of Hosea. Open up the prophet Isaiah. And so, so the, 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 the old Testament uh, would have been obviously the holy scriptures of the early church and still are. And the old Testament would have been the scriptures that the Jews would cling to as they look toward the Messiah. And so they would be familiar with this, with these writings. And they would likely have hid hid much of the Old Testament in their heart. And here's what Hosea Hosea chapter one, verse one says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah. Here's what he says, verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom." And have children of whoredom, for the land commits a great whoredom. He commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. And, and and not only would this prostitute be unfaithful to him, but he would be unfaithful to him time and time and time again. That there would be times in the relationship when Gomer would say, You take the kids. And she would be gone again. But Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was living history for what Jesus is trying to help them see. Hosea continued to love her and forgive her. It's a picture of God's continued love and forgiveness. You see his compassion. You see his humility and his reverence. And Jesus says in verse 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. He says over in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was the message of Jesus. That is the life giving message of Jesus. Repent and believe, repent and believe a sinful person who thinks that they are righteous and are healthy and have no need for a doctor. They will close themselves off to God's mercy. John MacArthur says this, he says, Jesus did not come to call the self-righteous to salvation, but the same reason he did not call the Pharisees to recline with him at the dinner in Matthew's house. They were too good in their own eyes to condescend to such humiliation. And because they would not identify themselves with fellow sinners, they could not be identified with Christ who offers salvation only to sinners who are willingly acknowledge that they are sinners you are he 's basically saying you 're satisfied with yourself that the kingdom of God is for the spiritually sick who want to be healed, the spiritually corrupt who want to be cleansed, the spiritually poor who want to be rich, the spiritually hungry who want to be fed, the spiritually dead who want to be made alive, it is for the ungodly outcasts who long to become god 's own beloved. Children. Luke says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so, as we reflect on this text, we see God's heart for people. Love God, love people, the great and first, second commandment. And He gives this to us, and that love challenges us. His love challenges us us. It challenges us to see people the way he sees people. We see people every day, perhaps multitudes of people, (laughs) hundreds of people, maybe just passing them, passing them, passing them, but have a sensitivity to see others, to share the hope of Jesus. Our effectiveness in reaching people will be severely limited by our inability to genuinely love and care for other people. And we got to remember that our war is not flesh and blood. We got to remember that. It's it would be good for us especially in this season we're in just go to Ephesians 6 and just read it every day because it talks about the armor of God. And it's this reminder that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places we are in a spiritual war i'm convinced there was a spiritual war in that tax booth on that day where matthew gave it all up to follow jesus because he knew it was the only way and that and that not only do we see that but he follows him he follows him jesus invests in him and so how do we invest in people maybe it's throw a matthew party we're gonna talk a little bit more about that next week. Just what does it look like to live sent in our culture and where we're at? But but, but it could be to, it's just whatever the Holy Spirit lays on your heart. It's just to invest. Though so it takes time, it takes energy. It can look a lot of different ways. Perhaps it's to share a meal with someone who recently moved into your neighborhood and just you just wanna make them feel at home. I've heard it been said and I believe it. The dinner table is one of the greatest evangelistic, Tools that the believer has to share a meal. So often, Jesus was sharing meals with people when he's investing and he's teaching in them. So, love sees, love invests, and love challenges. And this is where it turns personal. This is where we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us Have we allowed anything into our lives that prevents us or hinders us from loving lost people well? And I think it is. I want to be abundantly clear. We must not, cannot, will not affirm sin. And we will not waver on truth. But Jesus was grace and truth. He was both. That's who he is. Every interaction, grace and truth. And so God help us to live out lives in grace and truth. As we grow to become everything God made us to be. As a church, I mentioned this last week, but we're going to drop in ongoing opportunities through the year. We're going to have a Love God, which is going to be a Love God pathway class. We're going to have a Love People pathway class. We're going to have a Live Scent pathway class. And the hope is is that here's a pathway that anybody can drop in anywhere along the way. It's going to be a class during Sunday school hour, just dropped in over the course of the year, not every Sunday. Just first Sunday of the month, we're going to have a, an opportunity to come and be like, you know what? I need to grow in my personal relationship with the Lord. What does it look like to live a gospel-rooted life? What does it look like to... How do you study the Bible? How do you approach the Bible? How do I have a meaningful prayer time? Love people. How do you make disciples who make disciples? How does that happen? It's one of the greatest ways to love people is to disciple them and invest in them. And so these are opportunities that are going to be sprinkled in as an opportunity for you to grow. And then the last thing that I would share is, I, I, I wrapped up with it last week, but I, I love this first 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. God made the first move. God made the first move. And our love for him and our love for people, it's simply our response to his love for us. And I love how Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And God offers many good things but the very best thing is that He offers forgiveness for us because our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. And in Revelation 3.20 the the Lord says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And if you're and, if, and if, if you're looking for a testimony of how true the Scriptures are, just look to Matthew. Just look at Matthew. Matthew's life, he might have had all the money he would want, but no doubt he was isolated, he was miserable, he was alone, and he was eaten up with the sin. And he knew he couldn't fix it. And so he responded to the invitation of God's grace to come into a relationship with him. And to experience that forgiveness of sin. And so I would say today for, the, for us as believers. God help us see. God help us to even schedule time. If that's what it takes with our busy, Our schedules are so busy. What does it look like this week to invest in some way. In somebody's life that needs the gospel. What does that look like? God are there, are there areas in my life that you're calling me to repent of. To, 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 to turn from. So that I can love people the way you do. God show me how to do that. Help me to do that. It could be today that you're here and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. And God's love has come to you through his word again. And he stands at the door and he knocks. And there's there's nothing in the world. That can separate you from God's love. And he is extending his grace to you. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that you would acknowledge your need for him. Repent of your sin and trust him as the Lord and Savior of your life. That he extends that invitation. And so today, I I encourage you, if that's you, take that step of faith and trust the Lord. And as we wrap up, I mentioned this at the front end. But I just think it's important for us to to carve a little time here. Uh, Typically, we would sing a song and, and have an opportunity for people to come forward, which that opportunity will continue to be the same. If you want to come and pray at the altar, I encourage you. There's freedom. Come pray at the altar. If you want one of our pastoral team to pray with you, for you, we would love to do that, to pray with you, to pray for you, whatever that might be. But we also are keenly aware of the brokenness that we see all in our world. I mentioned this Wednesday. It was a statement from a pastor in Afghanistan who said this. He said, we will meet, speaking of the church, we will meet and we will likely die. That is his statement. We pray for the preservation of life. We pray for justice. We pray for protection. We pray for those needs. We pray for those who don't have the ability to help themselves. We pray for the church, that they would be bold and be courageous in this hour of need. We look just below us in the Caribbean and see Haiti, who I think the last number I saw was north of 2,000 deaths through an earthquake, thousands more hospitalized, hundreds of people displaced and have nowhere to call home and just essentially living on the streets. We look around in our world and we see the the healthcare systems are overwhelmed and the stresses that are added and people's lives who are being touched by sickness and 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 all of and on top of that all the brokenness that we see. But take heart, take heart in the one who has overcome the world. And just like we sang in Christ we will see the victory. We will. We will. And we can trust Him because He's the sovereign Lord, the maker of the heavens, the maker of the earth, the maker of the seas, and everything in them. And so what I like to do is we're just going to take a few moments and just pray. Just pray to the Lord. Intercede. Intercede. Pray for those who maybe the Lord would lay on your heart. And let's give some time to pray to the Lord. Again, pastors will be here if we can pray for you. Uh, Let's spend some time in prayer.